Hello, folks. Welcome back. I'm your host, Simon Ward, and you are listening to the High Performance Human Podcast. Each week, myself and the guests have just one goal, to share knowledge that will help you improve your athletic or human performance. This week's guest is Craig Marker, a psychologist with a passion for strength training. We get into a lot of topics today, including high-intensity repeat training, kettlebells, and self-compassion. And you might be wondering what links all of these together. So let's get into the conversation with Craig and find out. Welcome to the show, Craig Marker. I'm excited to be here. Thank you so much, Simon. So, Craig, I have had Brad Cairns on the show uh, two or three times now. And I think in each of those conversations, Brad has mentioned this method of training that he attributes to you as being the originator called HERT, which is high intensity repeat training, I think. And that is probably different to uh, something else I've talked about on this podcast that Paul, Professor Paul Larson uh, champions, which is called high intensity interval training. Um, so that's the first topic I'd like to get into is HERT. But equally, I, I know from having a look at your website that you um, uh, love your kettlebells, as well as being a, a trained psychologist, you love your kettlebells. Um, of which I'm a great fan, um, and some of the strength training ideas around that, which probably, you know, um, would would involve hurt as well. And then, in line with your psychology stuff, and and really connecting with a podcast I recorded with my brother, you have this um, concept called anti fragile, which is about vulnerability and um, self compassion, if you like. And I'd really like to get into that at the end because I think there's a lot that strength athletes and endurance athletes can learn about sharing vulnerabilities and um, giving themselves a little bit of love. So if you're okay with it, let's kick off and um, let's start with hurt. So perhaps I could let you open up and explain the concept of hurt and, and how that started off, where, where sure, the idea sure. came from. Yeah, no, I, I, if, I think Brad's giving me way too much credit. I, I wrote an article about it, but this really this idea comes from many places. And I, I think we can, you know, the old Soviet literature is probably one of the older places. Charlie Francis, a, a famous track and field coach, mm-hmm. Phil Maffetone, all of these things kind of like flow into what I kind of, with Pavel um, Satsulin, who's really known for kettlebells, um, he was working on some you know, different protocols. And so we can, he was, we're running research studies on these different protocols. And, you know, I kind of named it hurt at one point in time, just to kind of show, he had mentioned it's repeats, it's not intervals. um, And that you need to make sure that every interval has exactly the same power. So that's the big difference in a, a hit style workout, your rest intervals are pretty short and as you go through that that training session, um, your power declines over time. So the original Tabata um, uh, Tabata's research um, kind of defined hit type training, and his was uh, twenty second intervals on maximal effort, ten seconds off, seven rounds, and eight. If you didn't lose power, you couldn't uh, keep going. So he, he did things like on a, a, a bike, uh, in, indoor bike, um, just cycle like crazy for 20 seconds, 10 seconds off. And over time, people lost power. So mm. um, this hurt. And I'm sure you've tried this many times. And yep. um, <laughs> that's it's four minutes, but it's a it's a hardest four minutes of your life. And that 10 seconds is not enough. Just just 
you know, just keep the pain going. And, and, you know, that 10 seconds off is, is not helping you recover really. So, and I'll go to, into the history a little bit more, but Pavel, you know, really talked about, and I love this phrase, luxurious rest intervals. <laughs> um, and this idea that we want to do every exercise with maximal power. We don't, you know, everyone wanted, you know, you're never going to get on a track and sprint um, at the effort that you do in the the six Tabata round. Like that's, that's not your, that's what, not what you want to train. You want to train how you're going to perform in your um, competition. Charlie Francis did the same thing with his track and field athletes and almost to an extreme. He was known as uh, like, they do a sprint and then they wouldn't sprint again for 15 minutes later. So everything compensated, recovered. There was a, even a compensatory effect where they, you know, might have had super compensation after 15 minutes. Um, after that second sprint interval, they would rest even longer. So I mean, that's extreme recovery. Um, you know, that's boredom uh, intervals. You know, where you're finding something to do for 15 minutes. Um, you know, I, I think. The work we did with Pavel was much more luxurious, shorter, a little bit uh, less mind-numbing than 15 minutes, you know, something, you know, like a, a minute or two. And, you know, one of my favorite things to do is every minute on the minute type intervals where you're doing a short um, sprint and you've got the rest of the minute to to rest. Um, so that that's the main thing with uh, repeats is that every um, repeat has the same power as the repeat before or when you started. Um, so, you know, I, I like to measure kettlebells that you mentioned. Um, I can measure it with an accelerometer. I can measure my power um, hitting a heavy bag. I can measure my power I on cycles. You can, you know, measure your power. Um, you know, so, you know, I think sprinting is a little bit more difficult measuring that power output, but um, you can measure distance or some other things, but you want to make sure you're getting that same, same amount of power in every interval. Mm. Yeah, you're right. I have tried to batter intervals and you're equally correcting that that is the, you know, it's four minutes, but even after the second interval, when you go in max, you're dying, aren't you? And I can absolutely see, I, I have to set the power on the ergometer. So I try and hit the same power each time, but that's nowhere near my maximum, but it's what I can manage for eight reps. And uh, yeah, um, I can see why nobody would want to do those again. Uh, I've tried the, I've tried the hurt intervals. I've tried it on the ergometer because it seems like the safe for, for an old man, it seems like the safest thing to, to be able to do on a bike without, without uh, tearing anything. And uh, I think I can get up to about 700 Watts now, but I, I'm some, and this is the next question I'd like to uh, to ask you is what's what's the duration? I mean, I, I guess if you go in maximum power, that does tend to drop off after about 10 to 12 seconds, which probably goes with the um, degradation of your ATP, does it? Definitely so. Yeah, and I, I think it depends a little bit on the implements. I, like on the, the, um, the bike, I think, you know, you get going in 10 to 12 seconds, you're, 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 you're pretty much done on a rower. Like I find something about the rower, maybe it's the break in between or whatever. I can go a little bit longer, mm -hmm. um, you know, jump rope, um, you know, it's hard to put max power into a jump rope, but like on different intervals, it's a slightly, or on different implements, it's different intervals that you're going to look at. But I think that 10 to 15 seconds is probably pretty optimal. There's a paper that came out, um, um, Fiorenza and colleagues in 2018, and they looked at uh, five-second intervals with 30 seconds rest, 
And then they looked at 20 second intervals with 120 seconds rest, but there's nothing in between. They found, I, I think in that study, the 20 seconds intervals were a little bit more effective um, and pretty similar to continuous um, effort for 50 minutes, like a long, slow distance type of, of exercise. Um, but I'd like to, I think something kind of that sweet spot would be 10 to 15 seconds. Again, it probably depends on the implement and it depends on the person. I mean, wherever you're, you know, ATP, some people are very good power athletes and, you know, they, um, you know, and it's, it's so it probably depends a lot too. like the bike. I hate the bike. Um, you know, I'd much rather do it on something else than, than the bike, but, um, you know, the bike will kill me and, and, you know, it's what your muscles are kind of optimized for. And, um, so I, I think it depends on the implement and individual differences play a big role too. But Yeah. And I guess if we're talking about strength activities, um, you'd have to pick the right one, wouldn't you? Because if you were doing, so if you're doing, if you're doing thrusters, you know, squat to a press, um, you're able to keep keep a more rhythmic action, so you're going to reach that maximal effort shorter. If you're doing um, power cleans, then there's a rest period, isn't there? As you're lowering the bar down before you start the next one, and so you'd be able mm-hmm. to you'd be able to do that longer. So I, I totally get what you're saying. And most of our listeners are endurance athletes, mostly triathletes, so they'll be thinking about how can I use this in the pool. I think that's probably quite difficult. Um, because of the technique running a lot of people don't a lot of endurance athletes definitely don't like sprinting maximally for 10 seconds so it seems like the bike and and as it's a physiological thing we're trying to develop i suppose it's um you know in energy systems it, it i guess some ways it doesn't matter what particular mode of uh, activity you choose to to go maximum yeah yep yeah i think we can talk about sprints um, in the pool I, I i love that idea um I will say a little bit about sprinting and like, um, like running and Brad, like as Brad Kearns is big on this. And, um, you know, I, I think the problem with sprints when you're uh, on a track is that acceleration, that first uh, couple meters, it's, it's completely different than once you get up to speed, because then it's about keeping the, the maintaining the pace. So I don't find that sprints on a track work as well. And I'm sorry, Brad, if you do actually listen to this, I think, you know, pushing a sled where you've got that sort of tension that builds up, it's like building that acceleration can continue a little longer or um, mill sprints, um, yeah. you know, where you've got that tension because you don't want that trying to maintain that speed because that's that's a whole different uh, mechanism than, you know, the, that initial sprint and in, in running. Um, the pool is an awesome place for, for doing these type of sprints. And, um, you know, I, I, there's... I'll try to find this link for you, but there's some really interesting, this it, also some historic type things where this idea came from, but um, I think it was German swimmers or Dutch swimmers, and I, I apologize, I don't remember, but their, their swimming coach did these intervals, these sprint intervals, and had luxurious rest for a while, but then over time sort of shortened the intervals. And so this is, um, I don't know my pool meters that well, but let, let's say it's a 200 meter pool swimmers, you know, they might um, sprint uh, 20 meters, rest a certain interval, sprint another 20 meters, you know, way back to the beginning, sprint another 20 meters. Um, but the rest periods got shorter over time so that eventually it was almost like they could do t- 200 meters at a more of a sprint pace. So, you know, that we can play with our rest intervals too. Um, and I think we can get dive deeper into this, like what is the optimal work interval, but also rest interval. And we can use heart rate to get some of that and, you know, some other things to, to say when we're ready to go again. 
I, I mean, for me, when I've been experimenting on the bike, I know you, you talk about doing the minute for minute on the minute, and I've I find that if I um, start off with some momentum on the bike, um, choosing the right gearing is, is key because if you start off at what feels okay, you're pretty soon um, running out of revs. And so you 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 you're not able to pick up the momentum. So you've got to start off with something that feels a little a little too strong, and you just get into the right rhythm with the last few seconds. Um, at about ten to twelve seconds, I can see my power starting to sort of tail off a little bit. So for me, and I, everything's individual, that that works. And then a sixty second rest um, seems to help me to reproduce the same power throughout the the, the set. And I guess the the number of repetitions you select is also key isn't it because there'll be a there'll also be a point where no matter how long the rest you start to tail off because you just you're just not recovering mm-hmm. and that, that's and that's not just an energy thing is it because it, when we talk about endurance athletes we're talking about the carbohydrate mechanism this is also central nervous system that we're working here and that needs to recover as well and that takes much longer correct yes yep definitely so and i think that's that why Charlie Francis or the sprinters who are just training sprints, that 15 minutes was, you know, worthwhile for them because it wasn't just a, you know, physiological getting oxygen to the, the cells or, you know, getting rid of waste or those type of things. It was also that neural connection they, they needed to be fully recovered from. Um, yeah, I, I liken Verkoshansky. So I didn't give a lot of history on this. I just started, mentioned Charlie Francis. Um, but Verkoshansky is a, a Soviet, um, mm-hmm. famous Soviet coach, mostly known for plyometrics and, you know, kind of the, the grandfather of plyometrics. Um, but he also did this really amazing work on this sort of um, anti-glycolytic. He didn't necessarily call it anti-glycolytic, but, um, you know, this avoiding the glycolytic system. And, um, you know, he likened it to a sink where uh, it, it, the drain wasn't fast enough, you would fill up the sink as fast as you could, almost to the top, and then shut the faucet off and let it drain. And I love that analogy because what we can think about it, I think some beginners want to start this hurt training, but they don't have a good aerobic system. So their drain is, is pretty small to start with. And I think having a an adequate drainage system is important before you start these type of programs, because like for you, you're recovering in 60 seconds. That, that tells me you've got, and I could have guessed this already before you told me this, but you've got a really good aerobic system that can clean up all of the, the leftover parts that the glycolytic system's putting out there. Um, and, you know, kind of moving into more modern systems, like the Maffetone system is all about creating that aerobic base that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that you don't really have to make that mess with the glycolytic system. And, and if you do, your aerobic system is just, you've got a drain that's uh, so wide that it can handle, you know, really draining out any glycolytic uh, byproducts and lactate and um, those type of things. So. I, I'm glad you mentioned that. Phil maffetone has been on a few times and he's one of our most popular guests, actually. And uh, I've, you know, since I actually, since I read uh, Brad's Primal Endurance book and he references Phil Maffetone a lot in there, um, I've really changed the methods and the way I train and focus way more on um just really low intensity work. I get a lot of pushback from people saying this math, you know, one at 180 minus your age, this math formula is way too easy. I'm like, well, that's the point, you know? And and I do think that perhaps some people are, they perhaps don't understand physiology as well as they think they do. And they don't think that if it's easy, it's doing them any good. Um, but they also forget that if it's easy, 
or relatively easy. You can come back the next day and do the same thing and the next day, and that builds huge consistency. And that's what we're talking about. Um, I don't, are, you, are you familiar with Stephen Seiler? I've heard the name. I, I'm trying to think of how I know that name, but uh, please tell me more. Yeah. He's, well, he's a Texan physiologist based in Norway, and he assessed the training diaries of around 1,500 endurance athletes from a whole range of sports, you know, from cross-country skiing to rowing, cycling, running, etc. And when he looked at the training intensity distribution, he noticed that in most of these diaries, there was 80 to 90% of the training was done at well below the aerobic threshold and a small percentage was done way above. Now, obviously, in order to do 20, 30 hours a week, you need to have a lot of easy stuff because you just wouldn't recover. But equally, he, he's pushed this research on more since then. So his his philosophies fit very nicely with Phil Maffetone's stuff and the stuff you're talking about here is trying to avoid that threshold, you know, the glycolytic development between aerobic and anaerobic and, and either and, and to the Kenyan running style. When it's easy, it's very easy. And when it's hard, it's extremely hard. You know, that, that's, I love that because I didn't know that at all. And, but it reminds me, there's a Soviet um, coach and I'm playing on the person's name right now, but examined all the Olympic weightlifters in, mm-hmm. you know, the Soviet Union. And they're working at, you know, most of their weight trainings between um, 65 to 85%. And those big heavy lifts were very infrequent. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they trained the neural system. They trained in this is a completely different style. But, again, it's a lot of practice of the skills and then, you know, not draining the system with really heavier and intense type things. So, And that's what made their Olympic athletes have such longevity as well. And, and I think, um, you know, Maffetone talks a lot about longevity or Mark Allen and his longevity in the field and, um, you know, a lot of those – I don't know if many people follow the Maffetone and you've said you've got some pushback, um, but I'm surprised that, you know, with the people that have followed that and how well they've done, I'm surprised mm. that more people aren't following that. Um, well, th- so there's a couple of things there. The first, let's talk about the Russians because they are back in the bad publicity books, aren't they, with this skater <laughs> at the moment. But yeah, yeah. I do think that the... The, the way that their system, the way the Eastern, the old Eastern Bloc system from before the, you know, before the Berlin Wall fell, um, has been tarnished by the by the focus on drugs and these amazing training methods and control of athletes that they had in programs. Uh, and again, I go push aside all the political stuff and the reason why they had them. But the fact that you've got people in programs, which is the same in the Western world, it's been proven that when you when you can see your athletes regularly, you are able to manipulate the training program much better. Um, the training methods, the periodization, the block periodization, all of that other stuff, you know, there's some fantastic training methods that we overlook and forget about because there's an over-focus on the, well, it was all drug-fueled and that's the reason why they were successful. And, and that's not the case, is it? It helped. And we should also not forget that there were Western athletes that were also taking drugs that weren't as successful. So, you know, no, nobody's entirely innocent. Yeah, exactly. And um, I think the longevity piece is like a, a big part of it because the Bulgarian, and even at that same time, the Bulgarians um, would have these incredible athletes and they, you know, and the Bulgarian system was a lot of high volume, high intensity, um, but the Bulgarian athletes never really made it until, you know, into late twenties because they would have injuries or burnout and those type of things. There were Soviet weightlifters that were lifting into their thirties and still winning gold medals. And mm. again, 
you know, maybe it was better substances. Maybe it was that, you know, who's to say that nobody's using substances now. And um, I think if we look at the weightlifting records, they changed all the weight classes in weightlifting because they wanted to sort of have a clean slate. But those weightlifting, if we go pound by pound, those um, records are still there. And um, whatever it is, their system um, worked. And yeah, I think we do discount some of the, these older systems. We always want the what's more modern and, and mm. um, the higher tech Um you know, what's new is, is seems like it's better, but it's not always necessarily better. The longevity thing, I, I think that's something I picked up from Maffetone and Brad Cairns as well is, you know, it's okay when you're in your thirties and thinking you can smash it every day, but now I'm in my, in my late fifties, I'm thinking, well, I, I'm, am I still going to be able to get on my bike or go skiing or, you know, walk around without being in, in any sort of joint discomfort when I'm, when I'm in my late sixties or when I'm in my late seventies and I've got friends who are still doing that a limited number and I'm thinking right well what do I have to do now to make sure that I'm that person in in 10 years time and looking at the type of training I do looking at about how often I go to the well and smash myself looking about you know how do I avoid getting injured because you know anybody who's listening to this who's getting older will know that it, it seems like injuries become more prevalent and they take longer to recover from so you lose your fitness and it takes longer to get it back so um you, you just don't want to get injured or ill so how do you avoid all of those? Um, so I love that whole piece about longevity. And again, I think it's often overlooked in elite sports, but um, perhaps perhaps we shouldn't be overlooking that. And certainly most of our listeners are not elite athletes. They're people who've got jobs and families and, and are doing this because they love it. Yep, yep. I'll comment. First of all, I don't know if many people can see the video and know what you look like, but you do not look like your late fifties. You just took me, I don't, I can't think of anything else right now, but you definitely don't look like you're in your late fifties. So well, I um, appreciate, appreciate that. Actually, as we record this, I'm 58 tomorrow. So uh, um, happy early birthday. Happy <laughs> thank birthday. you. Well, That's it'll be incredible. happy late birthday by the time we get to listen to this, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, well, uh, thank you. Thank you, Craig. Thank you for saying so. Yeah, the um, and, and I'll just kind of speak a little bit on the longevity piece too, because um, I'm a quantitative type person. I love measuring, you know, and I'm sure I know you are as well. Um, I'll, and I, I don't think these longevity measures are, you know, perfect yet. But like, you know, like there's telomere testing. There's some um, uh, other types of of testing, looking at you know, sort of cell damage and different things, and. I check those as well as like hormone tests and those type of things. Cause I want to see where I'm at. Like you said, I don't want to get injured. That's kind of the, the best outcome, but I also want to see, you know, what damage am I doing to my body and, and those type of things. And uh, with these style protocols where I get a lot of rest, um, my telomere testing was down to like, I think the last was 17 years younger than I am currently. Um, the methylation was 13 years. So like, I feel like this style and, and Brad talks about this all the time. And I think that's why he's not the, um, you know, extreme push everything, you know, it's either go really slow or really hard, um, but not a lot of in between. And, and because I think that's what we need for longevity. We need to build muscle. We need to build, keep our speed as much as possible. Um, and, you know, and stay healthy. That stay healthy is probably the top of those, those type of things. So, mm. yeah, I, that's one of the biggest reasons I'm doing what I do. And one of the biggest outcomes I'm looking at now, too. I, I do agree. It's, it's very important. Let's just go back to hurt training then. And did we, 
uh, sort of agreed that the duration of the reps was very individual and depending on the type of activity. Did we agree on what was the appropriate amount of amount of repetitions? I think of it this way, like um, if somebody is not a professional triathlete and they don't have, they have a job and they don't have so many hours in a day to train, like some of these interval type training could be really helpful um, for the, you know, the person that can do it on weekends and, you know, is like competes every once in a while, like this can really condense training a little bit. Um, I think of these intervals, like you mentioned like you said that going eight of them, you don't think you could go more. Um, I, th- I think that's where we're tapping into the glycolytic system. And each time our recovery is just a little bit higher and we're not able to sustain the full recovery anymore. So I, I think that's a, a valid style of training. I do that type of training. I think it brings about, you know, other anabolic effects, uh, hypertrophy of the muscles and those type of things that pushing into more lactate buildup is, is something. The other style might be, um, what sometimes is called a plus a, a lac plus aerobic, um, where you're allowing a more full recovery. And I, I, I do this with jump rope and, um, you know, I can jump rope Tabata style, 20 seconds on 10 seconds off. I can do that all day. And I'm not saying I'm a great athlete or anything like that with that, but like I can recover in those 10 seconds and you can see my hills of like in heart rate, it goes up into sort of a glycolytic range, but goes right back down to my mafetone number. It goes up, goes down. And you see those hills sort of stay level, stay the same over time. There's no upward trend of those hills. So I think for somebody who is a triathlete can do something a little less intense and more intervals, sorry, this is a long, long, long story, Um, a little less tense, more intervals over time to build more aerobic base versus where you're done after seven or eight with the the training you described there, you know, that's um, really pushing some other type of of effects. Mm -hmm. And I think cycling through these different uh, protocols, not necessarily in a week, but, you know, four weeks of four weeks is probably even too short. You know, if you're in an off season, a couple months of, you know, those, those intervals where you're making sure you recover and a lot of intervals to build the aerobic system, um, that can be quite useful. And then, you know, as you approach competition season, getting that glycolytic system primed a little bit more and help and seeing how well your aerobic system cleans it up, but pushing it to the limit where the sink is starting to overflow. If we go back to that analogy. So I think there's differences. Um, Mm. I never give a definite answer. I apologize. (laughs) No, and and I, yeah, it depends, doesn't it? That's the thing that irritates most people when they listen to us coaches <laughs> talk about it. <laughs> the answer is it depends. And I, I I guess the triathletes listening will be thinking, well, what am I actually developing here? If I'm going to do a 10-second maximal sprint on the bike, how is that going to improve my triathlon performance? I mean, my own answer to that would be, well, number one, it's an energy system you probably don't ever tap into. So if you were to call upon it in a race, it's going to be a little bit more debilitating and take longer to recover from than if you're familiar with it. Number two, there will there will there there are definitely races where you do where we do dead turns. You see this more in the World Triathlon Series and the elite racing where they're in a city centre circuit and they've got a dead turn either on the bike or on the run. And so you come into a, you effectively come into a halt and you've got to regain your momentum. And if you're in a pack, you need to regain that as quick as possible. So being able to apply power quickly and effectively with minimal disruption to your aerobic system is better. Um, 
if you're doing Ironman and it's an all-day event, there are still going to be times when you have to find a burst of acceleration. There are steep hills, there are dead turns. So, again, um, it's probably something you should just use occasionally mm-hmm. just to make sure you're familiar with it and it's not such a shock. And I also think, again, taking aside the sporting context, um, if we're going to train our bodies, rather than having a narrow band of of effort level and activity we should train throughout the full range because that's what our body requires mm-hmm. completely agree yes definitely so back to your point about doing multiple intervals there's a um a protocol that um, um you may or may not have heard of called microbursts. um the one that i favor most is to do 10 seconds at a certain power probably if we talk about functional threshold which is sort of like um the power you can hold for an hour um, you go about 150% of functional threshold and then you go 50% for 20 seconds. So 10%, 10, 10 seconds, 150%, 20 seconds at 50%. So you get a partial recovery. Um, that I think they used to use this with the track cyclists when they were in the team, because it's like being on the front for an effort and then getting back in behind the other three guys and then doing your turn, getting back and the ability to recover. But I know that they did some research where they looked at, um, how long it took to recover from these sessions. So they had a protocol of 10 effort, 20 rest, 20 effort, 40 rest, 30 effort, 60 rest, 40 effort, 80 rest. So the effort, the rests were always double the work bout, but the amount of lactic acid generated with the longer work bouts and therefore the, uh, the total amount that's generated at the end of the workout was way higher. And therefore the, the, remaining lactate in the body 48 hours later was still too high for them to do the set again. So the shorter protocols allow a quicker recovery, which means you can get maybe two or three in a week rather than just the one, which mm-hmm. to me seems a better, a better process. Definitely. Yep. Yeah. That's, and that, that's a great point. That's another reason to keep those intervals 10 to 15 seconds at most because psychologically you could push to 20, 25 seconds trying to go all out but you're going to need, you know, a lot more recovery and the next set, you're not going to have recovered as well as, you know, the same amount of work to rest interval, but just split in half um, or quarters. So I I think that's a great example because that lactate does build up and does affect our performance. So we can still have those physiological effects um, that we get with longer burst um, like draining the ATP as quickly as possible, triggering AMPK, building mitochondria, all those type of things with the short burst that we can probably do with the long burst. So, yep. All right, let's move on to, we touched on it a little bit, but let's move on to talk about strength training now. Um, I've been a big advocate of strength training. I, I started with actually working out at school when I was 15 with a, a, another boy at the time who was the British junior weightlifting champion. And so we were allowed to go into the gym, even though we were uh, below the school's limit, because he agreed to watch over us and make sure we were doing things properly. So I I learned to do squats and front squats and deadlifts and cleans from an early age. And I've been a big fan ever since. And I've always tried to include it in my training. I I feel like Maffetone, where he spent 30 years being the single voice talking about that method of training. And now people are standing up to listen. Um, triathletes typically if they could avoid anything would would knock out strength training first because they don't see the relevance um now for me it goes it goes beyond just the sporting um impact 
your performance impact and and we've talked about longevity it's the human impact isn't it human function relies on a certain amount of strength for stability and you know to be able to work against gravity and walk upstairs and lift things and you know keep doing that into an old age but um i think one of the main reasons that endurance athletes don't like strength training is a they've tried they've gone into endurance events because they're the sort of build that doesn't take um to strength training as easily but also it's just too confusing. It's just like, what? Do, well, okay, so I'm going to go and lift weights. So what do I do? I've got CrossFit next door, but I could go and do this. Uh, I've got somebody, Simon and Craig, are talking about kettlebells, but I've got some. I've got a TRX. You know, the, the the choice is overwhelming, and so you just end up procrastinating because you don't know where to start. So, you wrote an article called "Too Much Choice," which I loved, <laughs> and I, I'd like you to explain the concept behind that, and also what your solution was, if you don't mind. Yeah, this is um, yeah, this is a different. Uh, yeah, we're definitely shifting gears into psychology in a little little bit. There's a book by Schwartz, and it's um, something with choice in the title, and I'll get the title um, exactly. Um, he talks a great deal about this, and and when we have too many choices, it does a few different things to us. And you know, the first thing is it causes paralysis. And that's what you were just describing. There's, you know, this here, this next door, this, um, you know, other protocol and everything sounds great. Um, so you just don't do it. And one of the, the old studies of this was um, they were looking at a grocery store and the choices of jam um, at the, the store. Um, I think of, I don't know how it is in the UK, but toothpaste um, yeah. in the U S grocery stores, I just, I don't think it should be that complicated. And I sit there and I almost come to tears um, with trying to pick toothpaste because I have no idea. There's just hundreds of choices. And do I need the total? Do I need the mouth freshening? Do I need the whitening? Do I need this? And I'm totally par par um, paralyzed thinking about buying toothpaste. It really shouldn't be that tough of a choice. But the more choices we have, the more paralyzed we tend to become. Um, the other component is opportunity cost. Um, when we're doing some activity, we're thinking about what we're missing. And just even today, when we were talking about all these training type things, it's like I was thinking in my head, oh, I got to go do a mafetone protocol for a while. I haven't done that in a while. And mm -hmm. we're talking about something else. It's like, oh, I should try this. And like, I'm constantly thinking, what am I missing by doing what I'm doing now? I, there's other protocols or other lifting opportunities or those type of things that what am I missing? Those economists call it opportunity cost. Um, the other part is escalation of expectations. We think of, um, you know, I've, I've got, you know, a Garmin watch and, you know, I've got this, you know, uh, chest strap and, man, I should be really good at endurance right now. And all of these things. And like, I'm, I was looking at uh, running shoes Um and all of the technology involved in running shoes, like I'm feeling like I'm going to be really good at running. And it probably has nothing to do with how well my running shoes work or my Garmin watch works or this or that. But I have these heightened expectations because of all of the work I've made to make this choice. So um, it becomes my fault if it doesn't work it, because it, it's certainly not these Nike uh, shoes that um, have carbon fiber plates and mm. things because uh, there uh, people are winning marathons with these and it, it's got to be my fault. And so I have these really high expectations. And so when we have all these choices and I've made it, um, I, now I'm to blame for it because, um, you know, if 
somebody would have just handed me shoes, it would have been their fault that they didn't hand me the best shoes. But now it's my fault because I picked. Um, so oh man, you're so right there. I mean, if I was to go onto a forum, uh, an endurance forum, and see the number of c- comments on a thread where somebody said, "Right, I should I buy this Garmin watch or that Garmin watch?" Right, they're essentially the same, apart from the notation. One's a nine three five, the other one's a nine three six. This one will glow in the dark and give you voice control. This one won't. But uh, I mean, as a coach, I get incredibly frustrated that these things have got absolutely no bearing on your fitness at all. It's all about data. If I was to, I'd wake up an extremely happy man one day if the first post I saw was somebody saying, "How much sleep should I be getting?" and there were four hundred responses. Or somebody, instead of somebody posting a, a photograph of this new bit of kit that they'd got and all these like lovely thumbs up, somebody had posted, last night I had 10 hours of uninterrupted sleep for the first time ever. And there were 400 responses, but that that never happens. Nobody ever posts about that, but they always want to know what's the best bit of kit or again, kettlebells or TRX. I don't know. Just do one of them and see how it happens. <laughs> exactly. Yep. Yep. I, I joined an espresso forum. I wanted to learn about the craft of espresso and thinking <laughs> I'm going to get away from those type of discussions. And it's the same thing. Like there are thousands of posts on which bit of kit to get or, or those type of things. So it's, it's, it's incredible. Mm. Yep. Okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot then. Actually, let's let's not put you on the spot, right? You and I have both got CSCS qualifications. Strength training, for most triathletes, that one of the other reasons they avoid it is because they think they're going to gain muscle, which we both know is, is not true. I mean, even in weightlifting classes, there are weight categories. So you definitely don't want to be putting on muscle if you're going to take you out of that and into the next category. Um, so that's that's an understanding. But for me, the whole essence of strength isn't necessarily a performance thing. It's about building resilience and robustness so the body can handle the training. And to my mind, that's what makes kettlebells so perfect. So let's let's do a sales job on kettlebells. <laughs> um, we've had Steve Cotter on the show, and he's a kettlebell expert. You've talked about Pavel. Um, I'll let you do the sales job. Why are kettlebells such a good option for endurance athletes with little time to get to the gym? And then we can expand on some of the training opportunities they might they might take. Yeah, I'm going to ruin the sales job right from the beginning. I, again, I don't think there's one right implement. I'm going to tell you why I think kettlebell could be a good implement for the person. But, um, you know, I think one, it simplifies things. There's only so many exercises you can do in, um, with a kettlebell. And it kind of optimizes, you know, your, your time in thinking about choices. So I, I think that's an important component. Um, the other part is it's one kettlebell. And I think a lot of things we do at the gym, like a, a machine is probably the other extreme where it's restricting your movement to a certain pattern. And mm-hmm. if your body has, if your femurs are a little too long and, or your, you know, another part of your body is just misproportioned, it might not work as well on that machine. The machine is sort of built for the average person and it doesn't have many degrees of freedom on, you know, where you can move a kettlebell. You've got one kettlebell and it can go in all different directions and any type of movement um, that you're doing. So there's a little bit of that uh, stochastic uh, randomness to it that I think is beneficial to training for the most part. I mean, it can cause damage if people are really uh, misusing it. And that's, I think sometimes people are afraid of it. Um, But 
you know, if, if you follow some simple rules that, you know, that can become a big benefit, that sort of um, stochasticness of the kettlebell by itself. Um, you know, and again, I think it's simple. It's something that, uh, you know, I've got uh, kettlebells in my office. I can, you know, run through a routine, like I can do some swings in the morning if I, you know, want to, or I can press randomly throughout the day and have those sort of microburst type of training sessions throughout the day, um, you know, that are, it's quite nice to have that. I don't have a machine or something complicated to set up. Um, I think for the triathlete, and you're going to help me out a lot on this, um, and this is, this is your area, you've been on the soapbox a long time for this, so um, I'm just going to start the conversation. But a triathlete is used to forward momentum motions um, without any sort of rotate, not much rotational forces. So, you know, we're, you're trying to control rotational forces as much as possible. Um, when we're, when a triathletes on a bike, uh, kind of hunched over, you know, it's kind of putting the thoracic spine in a set position for a long time. Mm. Um, I think kettlebells and strength training can counter those effects and build, um, resilience. So you don't get injured. And, you know, like, my thoracic spine is really tight and I've been a runner pretty much my whole life. And, you know, that is always something that's really tight and, you know, going forward, it doesn't really matter, but for, you know, what I'd start noticing shoulder injuries and things like that. So, you know, a kettlebell allows me to some exercises to rotate the thoracic spine, um, you know, some things to kind of build shoulder mobility. If, if I have, a kettlebell overhead and it kind of moves around in all three, three planes. Um, so those are some of the reasons I really like kettlebells. I, I think um, they're a little bit simpler, like Olympic weightlifting is also great, but highly technical. Mm. And I think kettlebell movements can offer a lot of that same sort of explosive training without as much technical, you know, when I teach somebody um, a clean and a jerk, I mean, that's, you're lucky to get through, you know, even um, some of it um, in one day. I can teach somebody a swing in 10, 10 minutes or so mm. and get a lot of that explosive hip power um, with a kettlebell swing. Yeah, I also think, I mean, dumbbells also have the place, don't they? We once had um, a guy called Steve Javarek, um, who's a big fan of dumbbells and wrote a whole book about dumbbell conditioning. So I, I totally agree with you that there isn't one right method in it. Again, each one has its place, but... Um, what I do like about kettlebells is back to your point. They're simple. You haven't got much choice. Um, they do help. I mean, you've you've talked, you wrote an in-depth article about the Turkish getup. I mean, that's one of my favorite exercises because it's not, you're probably not going to build a great deal of muscle, but there's stability, particularly overhead stability in the shoulder. You've got to have balance. You've got to have coordination. You've got to have proprioception to know where your feet are, where they are in relation to the ground. And you've got to have balance. You've got to have a certain amount of strength to be able to get, get and hold the weight up and then to be able to get up from the ground into a lunge position and then to stand up and back down again. Um, so it's in terms of building mobility and strength, it, it, it does everything there, doesn't it? Um, and you don't need to use a great deal of weight, if any, in order to be able to get some sort of benefit from it. And it'll certainly tell you if your shoulders or your thoracic spine's tight. Definitely. So, yeah, I think like I'm looking out the window now, the physical therapy uh, 
cohort is outside um, right now. And, you know, like physical therapists love the Turkish get up because you can like you can break it down into parts and work on, you know, different parts for people going through therapy. Um, it's something I can, you know, prescribe to my to my mom, you know, like this is something as you get older, you're going to need to be able to get up and off the ground. And, mm. um, you know, MMA and wrestling type athletes love it too, because it is, it's that, you know, building that core strength and like a lot of, you know, sort of if somebody's on top of you, that the power to get them off of you is kind of built through that Turkish mm. get up. So, um, you know, there's, I've, and I don't even have the, the sort of legend right, but uh, the Greek wrestling team or Turkish wrestling team or some wrestling team um, required everybody to Turkish get up 150 pound ke- or um, kettlebell or something along those lines. I don't know if it's true or not, but like if you think about it, I mean, it's really important for a lot of those sports too. But like I do it, as you mentioned, it's my shoulder prehabilitation. Pre- like, so my shoulders don't get injured and it just helps me, you know, keep everything in line. Like if I feel like you know, my thoracic spine is getting tight, it helps loosen that up and, um, you know, keeps everything sort of, you know, my hips and everything. I really like it as sort of a preventative medicine, I think. Mm. Yeah. I think if there was, if somebody said to me, you just got to pick one exercise that you could do, I think I might pick that one just because it, it works everything. And, uh, it's, it's fairly easy. You need a bit of space. <laughs> I've, uh, I've wrapped my knuckles a few times on the ceiling in, in certain rooms and caught the light shade and broken the light bulb, but, um, uh, it's pretty good for doing outside, isn't it? And you can do it anywhere. Um, just, just gather a few looks if you're in the park. Mm-hmm. Um, you, uh, you mentioned, uh, we talked about Pavel and, um, Pavel has this thing called greasing the groove. It's sort of fairly similar to your on the minute, every minute, isn't it? Except Pavel talks about doing something on the hour, every hour. And that's another thing that I like about maybe kettlebells is that you could have one in the office. You could have one by your stand up desk at home and every hour you could do a minute's worth of kettlebell swings. Uh, I think Brad's got a, Brad, Brad's got one of his other um, regular podcast guests that talks about how he just started doing a little routine every hour and the number of repetitions of air squats and pull-ups and press-ups that he was amassing was huge and way higher than it would have been if he just made three trips to the gym. Def- definitely so. And and I, I can talk a little more about greasing the groove, but Marty Gabala, and I should have mentioned his name earlier, he's been somebody who's looked at um, work to rest intervals. Um, he came up He's got a New York Times bestseller, which is um, the one minute workout, um, which sounds extreme, but it's basically three rounds of 20 seconds on. But he's been working on protocols for people who are older and basically doing a small sprint every hour, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, like just go take the stairs every hour and those type of things. So, yeah, I think this is, you know, super powerful. Pavel's original thing was uh, his, um, when he was growing up, every time he walked out of the house, he had to do a pull-up on the door jam and he got really good at pull-ups. Um, he told his father-in-law to do the same thing and his father-in-law's um, pull-ups really greatly improved. So, you know, this idea of greasing the groove means greasing the neurological groove. So, you know, you might be building, you know, uh, mitochondria and those type of things, but you're really building that neural groove of practicing the skill over and over again. The one pushback I get when we, t- whenever I mention this, is that um, people say, "Well, what about my warm up? You know, how can I lift weights if I'm not warming up? So if I'm going to have to warm up every time I I go to do that, then um, that that means it's not quite as simple as you're talking about. So how how do you overcome that? <laughs> 
I, I think I, uh, Kelly Starrett has this uh, book called The Supple Leopard. Yeah. And um, Pavel talks about it in one of his books that, you know, in the animal kingdom, you know, you don't see, you know, a leopard, you know, stretching and doing all these things before, you know, approaching prey. Um in a way, if you have to warm up, you have to warm up. Don't let, don't get me wrong on this, but in a way our body should be built where we don't need an hour to, you know, sort of warm up and, you know, stretch out everything or foam roll everything. So, you know, doing a pull-up um, every hour shouldn't like I'm putting these pressures on me and we'll get into vulnerability and, and sort of self-compassion. And maybe it's just me being too tough on myself, but I feel like I should be able to do a pull-up without having to do a big warm up. And um, you know, I, I think that type of thing, like a press, you know, if I'm doing it every hour, I should be pretty warmed up from the last hour that I did it. And, you know, I, I don't think it's, you know. Do you think it says something to people's um, inactivity during the remainder of that hour that if you sat at a desk hunched over your hip flexors are tight your glutes aren't really activated your hamstrings are getting shortened um, you're not moving around at all other than with the with the with the mouse um, you're going from 59 minutes of of completely unathletic to one minute of athleticism whereas if you were um, I don't know if you're at a stand-up desk now I am I'm at stand-up desk um I try to move around my house and move into different positions to do certain things. And I might, you know, if, if I had something to read after our call, I might go and sit on my yoga mat and sit cross-legged and read that or lie on my stomach and do it. Or um, So if you, if the more unathletic you are, the more you might need to unkink yourself before you do that. Um, I think also, if you were going to pick up, I've got four kettlebell whales here going from 12 up to 24. So I definitely wouldn't pick up the 24 and do a set of swings, but I might pick up the 16s and do a set for a minute, which mm-hmm. is perfect within my um, comfort range. But still, if I, c- I could do that every minute, you know, on the hour, every hour, and I could amass um, 200 kettlebell swings by the end of the day without yeah, too yep. much strain. Yep. You had a much more compassionate answer than I did. I, I appreciate you helping me out with that. <laughs> <laughs> I've listened to my brother a lot talking about self-compassion. Um <laughs> Yeah, so there's, uh, I mean, that's Kelly Starrett. He has that uh, app now, doesn't he, called the Ready State, which is to your point about, uh, you know, animals in the wild are always in the ready state because they're either preying, they're they're either the prey or they're predating, aren't they? So, um, Mm -hmm. you know, you need to be ready for an opportunity when it comes. You don't want to sort of uh, have to warm up before you go and catch the antelope because it'll be gone. Mm -hmm. So, some of the stuff that you've written about in, in line with kettlebells, and we can put links to these in the show notes, you talk about um, overhead athletes and triathletes are overhead athletes. You know, the swimming stroke particularly is an overhead action and shoulders are quite a vulnerable part of the body. Um, you talk about getting used to and, and teaching the body to be able to handle overhead activity. And you have this thing called the waiter's carry um, and you recommend that every workout finishes with, um, is it 25 or 30 meters of walking with a loaded kettlebell or two loaded kettlebells? Yeah, you- yeah, I think that's that's a great sort of, uh, again, if you don't have the thoracic mobility and your arm is sort of in front of you when you're trying to do a waiter's walk, that you're not going to 
really be able to do that. That's going to give you a lot of feedback. But if you can have a nice um, overhead sort of uh, position, that uh, weight over your head is going to bounce around. The walking is, you know, it's it's good to build sort of core strength. Your whole core is going to have to get tight to keep the shoulder joint in position. Um, and then you've got that stochastic bouncing around of that kettlebell on that shoulder. And all of those stabilizers are going to come in and be active in, in those moments. And to me, that's incredible type of training. Like you can't really do anything else, um, you know, that, that has that stochastic type of um, rhythm to it. And so that's why I really like those. Um, Dan John has talked about just taking that even further. And I might've taken that idea. I, most of my ideas come from someplace else. So maybe even the waiter's walk um, came from Dan John, but he talks about carries like that. He does a lot of farmer's walks where two arms at the side, um, clean walks where the kettlebells are kind of up on the, the chest um, and kind of ending with a lot of different walks at the end. And each one has the different component to it. I like the waiter's walk because of the shoulder. And to me, the, the shoulder stability is probably the one of the most important and toughest um, areas to work for me. So mm. the other thing for me is uh, that when you carrying the weight overhead, it switches the lats off from providing that stability around the core, doesn't it? So the core muscles are going to have to work more. And I think, I think it might've been Pavel or Dan John that talked about what, what, if you wanting to improve your overhead press strength, actually it's not the strength of your shoulders or your triceps, it's the core and the athletes who've got the best presses tend to have the strongest cores. Yeah. There, that's um, one of the neat things like about the kettlebell certification um, there's this whole set of uh, exercises that basically are learning how to activate the core. And, you know, so you learn like, you know, squeeze the glutes, like you've got a walnut in there and you're trying to crack a walnut, um, lift up the kneecaps, um, pull your belly button towards you. So everything is tight and, and then, you know, squeeze the other hand. And it's so neat because we, you know, sort of do a pre and post and people lift their max ever kettlebell weights and, you know, compress it overhead just because they've learned to sort of tighten that core. Mm. Um, so yeah, it's, it's super important. It's also that integration of systems. Um, you know, just as when we go to a machine at the gym, it might be working certain muscles, but it's not integrating with the rest of the body. And that's probably another one of those big benefits of kettlebells um, is that you have to learn to, if you're going to do it well, like a waiter walk, you have to integrate everything. You've got to integrate your whole body into holding up the shoulder um, uh, stably. So, the perhaps the other pushback that that endurance athletes have for strength training is, well, I just don't have the time. So we've talked about the convenience of having some kettlebells at home. You don't need a gym. You don't need to have a bench. You don't need to have a uh, somewhere where you can put a pull up bar. You can just have this one implement that sits on the floor in the corner, and. Um, so that means you don't have to get in your car and drive 10, 20, 30 minutes to the gym. And that, that's an hour wasted of your day, perhaps. Um, the other thing is, well, because of all my other training, even when I get to the gym, even if the gym was next door, I don't have 30 minutes or an hour. I think perhaps from the bodybuilding world, we feel like, well, I have to have an hour in the gym. You know, I hear about all these people saying I'm there for two hours, of which most of it we know is just chattering. Um, I have, again, from some of the stuff I've picked up from Pavel and um, from reading your stuff and Dan John's stuff is finding short routines that I can do in 10 minutes, but do them more frequently rather than having, having sessions um, set at 
um, maybe twice a week. So what, what, what are your thoughts on that and uh, some of the combinations of exercise we could do? Like you talk in Pavel's book um, where he talks about the simple and sinister routine and he's got kettlebell swings followed by Turkish get-ups and that's it. And it, and it lasts for 15 minutes if you follow the official protocol. Yeah, yeah, no, I think yeah, that uh, kettlebell simple and sinister is is a great protocol. It's it, like you said, it's you know exactly fifteen minutes. It's something that if you don't like strength training, it's like taking you know um, fish oil or something. You just take it and you're done with it. I mean, it's that it's it's fifteen minutes and that's it. Um, Easy strength is another good book that you mentioned, Dan John and and Pavel, um, and they talk about. Four, I'm going to kind of break it down into four movements, but a, a hip hinge, like a kettlebell swing, a squat, an overhead press, and an overhead pull, like a, a you know kettlebell press and a pull-up. And doing those things um, every day, but a constrained number of reps, um, you know, that you're, you're not doing, you know, you're doing 10 to 20 reps of those every day. Those workouts, like, like sometimes I'll come to the gym and if – I, I actually go to the gym when nobody's there because I get embarrassed because I'll come in and, you know, 10 minutes later I'm leaving and they're like, Oh, are you not working out today? And and it's like, no, I'm pretty much, I'm done, you know? And, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, those type of protocols, like if you can do it every day like that, it, it builds a consistency. Um, mm. y- you feel refreshed every day. You feel like um, you don't feel like, you know, just did leg day. I can't work, um, do this training the next day or, you know, those type of things. Um, the other component, like Bruce Lee did a lot of circuit training. And one of the reasons, you know, I'll train at home or go to a gym in off hours is because I can do a nice circuit training. Um, my heart rate is getting up the whole time, but like I'll hit something with, you know, the, you know, my quad dominant, and then I'll hit something with a hinge. I'll go on to another movement and I'm breathing hard like crazy, but my muscles are not getting sore where, mm. you know, I have to sit and rest three minutes. And I think the circuit training is a great opportunity for, for endurance athletes to, to get that training in um, as well. I had another guest on recently. I'm not sure if you've heard of um, Daryl Edwards runs, uh, has a business called Primal Play. It's all about like animal movements, but he was talking about peripheral heart action, you know, going upper body, lower body. So you, you, you're creating that cardiac effect because the, car, the heart is having to, having to shunt blood around from the legs to the, to the arms, the chest, back to the legs. Um, I, I've also, um, I think Brian McKenzie talks this, about this a little bit in, if you've read his CrossFit endurance stuff where he talks about combining CrossFit work with running. So you perhaps aren't doing as much running, but you're getting the, and often people, the problem people have with running is when they get tired, that's when the injury starts. So you do less running, but you do more strength. And in endurance races, for sure, ultra races, most people aren't slowing down because they're, because they're out of breath. They're slowing down because the, the body works failing, not the engine. And mm-hmm. I quite like something where I've got a little kettlebell circuit like we talked about maybe three or four of those exercises then i'll go off and do a three or four minute run come back and do another one that gives me a, if, if i do four or five rounds of that it gives me a good 40 minute workout but there isn't a lot of running in there but i've still but it, but it's a good general cardiovascular developer i love that that's that sounds awesome yeah yeah i i, I like that that sort of protocol like you know crossfit the same thing I think you mentioned with running that said sometimes people will get injured in CrossFit because they're getting so fatigued. Mm. You know, I think that if you keep that sort of 
hurt idea in mind that you want to do things in a good form, you know, don't worry about winning that competition that day, but do things in, in good form, you know, and then keep switching things. I, I, you know, I think a good CrossFit routine by a good coach can be awesome. And like you said, mixing it in with some running or some other things, simple and sinister. I I'm gassed just my, I'm breathing hard though, the whole time. Um, you know, so that's, that's not a simple, um, it's simple in concept, but not simple on your cardiovascular system. Mm. Yeah. I think it's also important that I suppose to have an idea of what exactly your goal is when you go into the gym, you know, if you're going to lift weights, why, why are you lifting weights? If you're lifting to build muscle, you're probably not an endurance athlete anyway. So you don't need to follow that protocol. So what, what's the purpose? How does it fit in and how, and what's the big picture rather than the small um, thing. And I definitely like, the idea of avoiding those hero workouts, you know, like you say, let's do a leg day. Let's absolutely smash the quads so we can't do anything for the next two days because that's not going to help anybody unless your goal is to have big quads. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Craig, you've mentioned anti-fragile self-compassion. We talked about it at the beginning of the of the show. I'm really keen to get into this. Um, I've done a couple of podcasts with my brother uh, about self-compassion. So I really would like to dive in now. And I, and I think this is important for endurance athletes as well as strength athletes, because um, th- there's this idea that we always need to be pushing harder, that we aren't good enough, that we haven't done enough, that, that everybody's doing better than us. That if I miss a day, you know, there's, there's Olympic athletes that say I train on Christmas day because I know my competitor will be getting an edge if I don't. Well, actually maybe you'll be getting an edge if you rest on Christmas day. So nobody ever covers that, but please, can you, open the discussion about anti-fragile and then I'll, I'll join in when I find an appropriate moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And let me tell you a little bit about where I came from and, and with this and work towards self-compassion. I came from the anxiety world where working with a lot of people for social anxiety or panic disorder. And, you know, if somebody has an anxiety disorder, the last thing they want to do is kind of put themselves in situations that lead to more anxiety. So there's a lot of protection. You know, if, let's say somebody with social anxiety, you know, they're going to do these protective behaviors. If they go to a meeting, they're going to sit someplace off to the side where they might not be noticed. They may not speak in meetings. Um, they're just avoiding anything that can lead to this social anxiety. So, by building this protective bubble around them, they're actually making themselves more fragile. They're almost reinforcing to their body um, that, wow, that was really scary. If you hadn't done those safety things, you might've died and you know not made it through that. So physiologically, and I'm not talking about even cognitively what we're thinking, physiologically, you know, if you didn't do those things, we would have had a panic attack and not been able to survive type of thing. So it's that idea of like watching a scary movie. Every time something scary, they hear a little bit of scary music coming, they cover their eyes and they never let their body adapt to that scary scene. And if you were to watch it 10 times, it becomes funny and like it's mm-hmm. it's no longer scary. Um, and that's what we do with anxiety disorders. So the anti-fragility piece is the more you're exposed to something in the right dose, um, the more anti-fragile you're going to become, the more resilient. Um, you're building up a system that allows you to handle stressors better. And in anxiety disorders, we're changing the person's physiology so that um, when they go into a situation, um, they no longer fear that. We, you know, like we do some pretty extreme things as people move through treatment. Um, you know, we have, you know, 
karaoke night is quite common or doing, <laughs> you know, stream, you know, things where we're making fools out of ourselves. Um, because if you can do that extreme, then the normal seems much easier. So that's where it came from. Um, Nicholas Nassim Tildeb um, wrote a book called Anti-Fragile. And I remember seeing it at the bookstore and I just picked it up and started reading it in the bookstore and I bought it, but I had basically read the whole book in the bookstore. It was just so fascinating to me because it, I was doing it from the anxiety perspective. He was talking about it from business perspective and that companies that um, you know have more robust ways to fail. And Tim Hart Hartford talked about it in his book, Adapt, as well. And Basically, like a company like Google, they have 700 projects going, you know, they have all of these different things. And it looks like they're throwing spaghetti at the wall, just seeing what sticks. But they're basically, if they have to kill 699 and one really works, they mm -hmm. because they're very anti-fragile. And I love that idea. Um, Taleb really defined that term to me. And it's like, this is what we've been doing with our anxiety patient. I've mentioned exercise to our anxiety patients so many times because when you go train, you're training, you're breaking down the body so that it gets stronger. And that's mm -hmm. exactly what we do with anxiety. Um, there, Vince Giardo, um, he's a longevity researcher. He's talked about just that this is the grand unifying theory of biology that if we look at the cellular level and all of these processes, stressors are actually good because they cause our body to adapt. And, you know, they're, um, I forgot who, Nicholas Salk, um, have somebody else, um, talked about like antioxidants being really bad for us after exercise because exercise would cause all of this uh, reactive oxidative species, which signal are important signalers for our body. And if we're blocking all of that, it can actually be, harmful to the signaling that we want to happen. So we want to, again, put the body under certain stressors, the right amount of stress, um, and then we build resilience. Um, getting into kind of that, um, I, and I think this is, I explained this topic like I'm a first grade teacher, all of your listeners know this. They push themselves. They know this. I'm sure they're really hard on themselves. Like you described, um, you know, like I work, I, I trained on Christmas because I'm going to beat my competitor who wasn't training on Christmas. Um, that compassion, that vulnerability piece, that was, you know, that's another chapter in this book is um, for a lot of us, you know, warriors, like, like I'm a wannabe athlete. I'm a wannabe warrior type person. I can I get up at two o'clock, I can train, I can read books, I can push myself in every direction. Being vulnerable, that was a little bit more difficult. Being, you know, letting my personal side out with others and, you know, kind of that, that's my part where I was not letting, you know, putting myself in bubble wrap and, you know, that sort of, um, you know, I, I think just letting others get to know me, like that's my protection. And it, it kind of that same mechanism to me, I need to let myself be more vulnerable myself, uh, expose myself, like I, anxiety patients expose their fears, I need to do that as well. And that's, you know, what I, I think is really interesting, that sort of putting yourselves out there, being vulnerable. Um, and, and that sort of gets into that self-compassion piece. I, and I need to stop and let you talk a little bit more. So no, that, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I'm fabulous, Craig. I, I was just thinking now, I, I Again, I'm, I'm not sure if it was a conversation with my brother or somebody else about special forces soldiers, that the best ones 
rather than being this super tough, you know, Marvel type character who shows no emotion of vulnerability, they actually do share vulnerability and they want people within their teams to share that vulnerability because knowing where somebody is a little bit more vulnerable helps the team get stronger. And I guess that would be the same within sports teams as well. Yep. It makes more sense if you're more secure with yourself and you're willing to put yourself out there, you know, that just is kind of a reflection of your security in yourself. And it's not a weakness that, you know, others are perceiving as a weakness. Wow, that's a strength that you're showing is to be vulnerable. So a listener who uh, has just listened to your um, paragraph there and thought, right, well, maybe I do need to be more vulnerable, but they don't have access to somebody like you. Is this something they can start to learn about themselves? You know, how do, how does somebody who's spent all their life protecting themselves and building that bubble wrap and that shell start to um, share that vulnerability? Well, they do, because I guess that that in itself, sharing vulnerability is also something that's going to make you more anxious. Def- definitely so. I, I think... You know, like what we would set up with anxiety disorders is we set up a hierarchy. We don't, you know, you don't go to karaoke the first day after having drink a bunch of caffeine and, you know, um, get up in front of a a tough audience singing a song you don't know on the first day. Um, You know, it's a bunch of steps. And this one of the mottos that we use in anxiety is if it feels bad, do it. I don't think everybody should follow that motto, especially, you know, like probably some triathletes that are listening, you know, if it feels bad, do it like, oh, this is my training. Like this is, I I don't think that's always right. I think that there's, you know, extremes to that, but for somebody with anxiety that has been protecting themselves so much, that opposite of their gut reaction is really important. And when I see a person with anxiety that's scared or about to cry, I know I'm doing the right thing. It's that gut reaction. It's like, when it feels bad to me, I know I need to help them push mm-hmm. more. And so um, preaching these ideas to people makes me, when I'm in these situations, I don't want to be a hypocrite. So if I see a situation where um, being vulnerable is important, like roller coasters, I I see no reason in the world for roller coasters. I have um, no idea why they were created, um, <laughs> but I will get in line with them because I know that I have to push myself past that. And I, I know I have to, to go past those fears um, and uh, nor otherwise I couldn't do what I do. I can't be a hypocrite and tell people to, to face their fears when I'm not willing to myself. So that being vulnerable in front of others, you know, when I'm feeling at my the need to be protecting myself like if there's like a something that just happened where it's like i the my gut reaction is turn turn yourself in don't say anything you know just this will blow off just just stay away from it don't be vulnerable i know i need to do the opposite and that's kind of where i push is i i try to be vulnerable when i don't want to be when it feels bad is is when i move towards it I've just come back from a ski trip and uh, I only learned to ski two or three years ago. And one of the reasons why I never learned to ski was because I spent most of my life um, helping to rehab people who've just had knee reconstructions, 90, well, probably 75% of which were ski injuries. Um, so I've learned to ski. I've been getting more confident and competent, but black runs were still my big bogey thing. And I, some of my friends have been skiing. And I'm like, like, don't worry about it, Si. You've been down red runs that are worse than these black runs. But last week they all decided to go down a black run, which was actually closed. And I'm like, there's a flipping close side there. It says <laughs> closed for a reason. It's not because they just 
you know, want to keep everybody in this bar. There's a reason why it's closed. No, no, no. It's fun. You know, it'll be all right. Right. Let's go. It's only like going off piste. Yeah, but I don't do that either. So down we go. First bit didn't seem so bad. It was all Mowgli. I don't, do you ski? Yeah. So you know where I'm, you know what I'm talking yeah. about here. Yes, get, onto yes, the, yes. get onto the middle bit was actually like a nice red run. I'm like, oh, this isn't too bad. And in France, they have little markers telling you roughly, nominally, how far you've got to go to the bottom. So I'm like, right, we started at 15. Now we're down to seven. Well, okay, we're getting there. Then we got the bit that was closed and it was horrible. It was, there was trees sticking out of it. There was rocks, there was dirt. It was Mowgli where the snowboarders had been down. They'd pushed all the snow out and it was just, you could see the ice. And I'm, like, oh, how am I going to get down now? It's a long way back up walking. You know, I've got to keep going. I could walk all the way down, but oh, come on, right? You can do this, you know. And that was me. I was out of my, I was vulnerable there. I could have started crying. Um, and I'm like, come on, everybody else is gone. There's just me and my partner. And she was feeling just as bad about it. Uh, in the end, we got down. Then two days later, they decided, we enjoyed that bar that was at the bottom of here. We're going to go and have lunch there. So what does that mean? Well, we're going to have to do that black run again. Oh, no. But actually, <laughs> the second time, it just felt a little easier. I felt a little bit more comfortable. But now what that's done is it's meant that when I have a black run that's an official piece and it's open, it's not going to seem nearly as scary as I used to think they were. That's an awesome example. Yeah, that's great. Incredible. I love it. Yeah. I tell you what, though, the restaurant at the bottom and the beer was well worth it when we got there. <laughs> That's the best part. Yep. Yeah. Well, Craig, we've had a great journey today, haven't we? We started off with high intensity repeat training. We've got on to self compassion and vulnerability. Is there, is there anything else that we missed out that we need to share with the with the listeners? Do you think? I was wondering about the Garmin watch, the seven thirty five versus the seven forty five, and if we can go yeah. in great detail about that just i'm gonna no, just, i'm just i'm just gonna send you a link to a couple of forums and you'll be more <laughs> you'll be more overwhelmed because you'll find out about the 737 the 738 as well <laughs> you'll just have more overwhelming choice yes yep no i, I don't need more choice just it's like with toothpaste just tell me which one to buy and i'll buy that one so um, i, I kind of like the idea of i think of steve jobs and there's been a few others wear the same outfit to work every day you don't have to choose i, I like that yeah I had a client who who did that. He said, I've got black trousers and a black shirt. I've got five of them. I have a clean one every day, but there's no choice. It's like, well, they're all the same black shirts. I don't need to choose between the one with the red collars and the one with the blue. So, yep. yeah, limit the choice. Do the simple stuff. Um, do it regularly. Do it well. I think we could all probably make massive gains just by doing that, couldn't we? Yep. I like that. I like that philosophy. Well, Craig, I appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much. It's been a really interesting conversation. Um, um, I do appreciate you taking time out of your day to join us. So uh, thanks for everything. And um, we will share the links to your site and everything else if people want to uh, find out a little bit more about you and read some of your articles. So, uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a great pleasure to be on here. I, I, it, was, it was a wonderful conversation. went by really quickly. Great. Thanks very much, Craig. Take care. See right. you around. Take care. Thank you to Craig for being on this week's High Performance Human Podcast. As usual, there are links to all of today's many discussion topics in the show notes below. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you're there, please leave a rating and review. And also, why not join our High Performance Human Podcast Facebook page? You've also probably noticed that during the episodes, we regularly ask our guests for their book recommendations. 
Over four years, we've now built up an extensive list. And if you'd like a copy of this, please visit the very obvious link in the show notes below to ask for yours. Okay, that's all for now. Have a great week and I'll see you on the next episode.